So I went up to Boston to shoot this documentary, to keep shooting on this documentary with my friend Stu Maddox, which is a lot of fun. It's about heroes of adult protective services. And they played the sizzle reel. They played the trailer. And uh, some people cried. And while I was there, I've always wanted to talk to my friend, Carlene Watson. We joke that we are cousins. Uh, she is the wife of my friend, Walter Ray Watson, who was my colleague, uh, also a Neiman Fellow in journalism, the year I was at the H School, not Hogwarts, up along the Charles River. And adore them, and we spent probably more time with them than anybody else. And when my family would come up, my kids would come up, we'd hang out together. And Carlene Watson was the executive producer of All Things Considered on National Public Radio, and now she's at WBUR here and now, and she is super smart, and um, and I've always admired her, and we've always had great conversations about all kinds of things. You'll love getting to know Carlene Watson. And all of that made me think, oh my God, do I want to be here? This is In Her Words, a podcast from manlisting.com, featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing because every woman deserves to be heard. Hello there, and welcome to In Her Words, the podcast. I'm Stuart Watson. I've been trying to talk to Carlene Watson for the longest time, and she's way too shy. But she has this great voice. You can listen to her. And we talked almost all of it about her childhood, her girlhood uh, in Jamaica, but also born in London. And we ended up, she and her husband, Walter Ray, and I were in a seminar taught by the late, great Charles Ogletree, who knew Barack Obama as a Harvard Law student. And we learned so much. And toward the end of the conversation, you'll hear us talk about that. And uh, But most of the time, we talk about her. And hearing her tell her own story is so much fun. My friend, Carlene Watson. Where were you born? I was born in London, England. I was born in Paddington General Hospital, as it was then. Um, it's now a very fancy hospital. But I think they tore down the old Paddington General, and in the, their place they put St. Mary's, which is the fancy hotel where all the royals are born. <laughs> so I have a niece there and a nephew, sister-in-law, and tons of friends, tons of friends. So, yeah, I do go back. Does that mean by birth you have dual citizenship? Dual citizenship. My parents are Jamaican. I was born in England, and I am now a naturalized American citizen. Does that mean you had to, like, take the test? I did. Is the test hard? The, the test isn't hard, but when I told my friends what was on the test, they were like, I wouldn't know that. <laughs> like what? What's something? They ask you what were the original 13 colonies, they ask you how many justices sit on the Supreme Court. They ask you things like, what are the three branches of U.S. government? They ask you who was the first president of the United States. They uh. ask you things like, who was the president at the time of emancipation? <laughs> it's like, one thing they did give, which was really easy, um, they, they wrote out, the First Amendment, I just asked you, gave you, um, which amendment is this? And you just had to check whatever you thought was the correct box. It was like, you know, is it the first, the 14th, or, you know, it was the First Amendment. Who doesn't know? C Congress shall make no law. Well, for a journalism graduate <laughs> student. <laughs> Well, you'd be surprised. <laughs> you'd be surprised people refer to it without knowing yeah. that religion and the press are right there together. Yeah, and that's right. That's exactly the, right. All the expressions. Yes. Uh, verbal speech yeah. and written. Yeah. The right of the people to seek redress. You know, it's, it's all there. How did you come to choose to live in the U.S.? Oh, my my ex-husband was a, an American citizen, and he didn't want to live in 
um, he didn't want to live in England. At the time, he was working with Amnesty International and his work was very much here. Um, and so I chose to follow him and move here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, if anything, did your mother tell you about her pregnancy, labor, and delivery with you? <laughs> so, you know, the, my parents' story is very interesting. Um, my dad was a very laid-back kind of guy. You know, lovely, lovely man, but very sort of like, yeah, whatever, I'm chill, you know. <laughs> My mom was really the driving force of our family, very ambitious for herself, very ambitious for her children. And in the 50s, um, the United Kingdom coming out of the war had a labor shortage. Um, and, you know, they had all these colonies around the world. And so they asked for people to come to work. And my mother said, I think I'm going to go to England. So it was my mother and two of her friends. They saved up their money, got their passports, got their um, passage, and um, they came to England. And she didn't tell my dad that she was doing this. My dad's family is from Kingston, capital of Jamaica. My mom's family is from the North Coast, Montego Bay. Um, and, you know, she left my brother with my grandparents in Montego Bay, um, which was not unusual because, you know, he was there all the time. And off she went. And my, my dad showed up and he was like, where's my wife? <laughs> and my uncles were like, she's not here, Joe. She's... She's in England. He was like, what? <laughs> but she wasn't leaving him. No, she wasn't leaving him. She was, she, she, she said to him, you should come with me. And he was like, oh, no, whatever. You know, I'm fine here. Um, Did they even discuss it? No. That, oh, that, she said after the fact. Yes. Um, so she was not asking permission. No, 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 no. That was not my mother's way. She made up her mind she was going to do something and she did it. But she got to England and then she, dis she discovered she was pregnant with me. And so she said to him, you need to come. So he did. And then I was born. And then a few months later, she brought my brother over which kind of really upset his apple cart because he'd be like, who's this? I, I, I'm the grandchild. I'm the prince. <laughs> Who is this person? <laughs> and how much older was he? Five years. And uh. that permeated our entire relationship all our life. The fact that he really felt I usurped his prime position in the family. The usurper. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> Yeah. And you became the focus. What kind of work did she do? My mom ran a business. She had a bar. Mm -hmm. We lived upstairs. We would go to school. We would come home. We would do our homework. Um, the bar at that time, it was situated across the street from the wharf. And one of the things that my mom did was she... On Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays, she would cook for the men who would tally the bananas. So this is a real thing. When Harry Bel Belafonte sang, come Mr. Tally Man, tally me bananas, there were men who would tally the amount of bananas that would go into these little boats and take them out to the ship because we did not have a deep sea harbor in Montego Bay at that time. Was the banana you grew up with different from the standard yellow banana we had? We had lots of varieties of bananas, actually. Um, from the very small ones that you sometimes see to some really huge ones that almost look like plantains, but they're not. They're really bananas. And one of the things that I have noticed since I left Jamaica, is that 
the bananas that people eat here are very seldom, they're not really ripe. They're kind of halfway between being ripe and still being green, that it's okay for them to have some brown spots on the skin and it needs to have a little bit of give. If it's too brown, obviously, then you use it to make banana bread. Mm. But I, the thing that I remember about bananas growing up was that they were really, really sweet, just naturally sweet because they were sun ripened. Were there any type of trees where you could just go and grab one and no one would get angry because there were... That would be mangoes. Mango trees proliferate all over Jamaica. Where my best friend lives right now, there's a mango tree in her front yard that some of the branches um, hang over the fence on the street side. And it's at a corner where people wait in the mornings to get um, these little taxis that take them into town. And when it's mango season in the in the late spring, early summer, people just, you know, they just pick the mangoes off the tree or they fall on the ground and they just pick them up and they take them. She always says she has more mangoes than she can give away. Now, what would people get angry if you took them? What would be stealing? I think people would be very upset if you stole produce, you know, the th oh, things right. that you have to dig up out of the ground. Yeah, garden. Yeah, 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 tomatoes, things like that. I think people would be very, very upset about that. And there's still people, small farmers, who they grow the produce and they take it to the market on Friday and Saturday. And people still get up and go to the market on Friday and Saturday. Here they'd call it a farmer's market versus just like your regular market you go you pick your fresh vegetables, you go to the fishmonger, you go to the butcher. Did you have a grocery store per se? We did. We had a grocery store. The grocery store was where we went to get um, non-perishables. I remember going to the grocery store for things like bathroom tissue, um, floor polish, laundry detergent, sugar, condensed milk, oatmeal. To a certain extent, was it also like a hardware store? You could go and get old things. Interestingly enough, this particular grocery store did have a hardware store next door. It was run by a Chinese, Jamaican Chinese family, the Chins. So you had Chins hardware store and Chins supermarket all in the same block. Was there a significant Chinese population? There is a significant Chinese population. I did not know that. Yes. The, the Chinese and the Indians came to Jamaica at the end of slavery, and they had um, indentured servitude. Mm. And you worked for a period of time, and then you could go off and do whatever you wanted to do. And so the Chinese and the Indians came. Jamaica, for some reason, had a lot more Chinese than they had Indians. You find more Indians in Trinidad and... Um, Guyana, some Chinese too, but Jamaica had a lot of Chinese. So there's a significant Jamaican Chinese population. How did slavery end in Jamaica? Um, the British abolition movement, William Wilberforce. Um, <clears throat> slave trade ended in 1807. Slavery ended in 1832. And the Patois is a mixture of what? It's African and English. Um, some Spanish words. If you spend any time in Jamaica, you will understand it. You won't necessarily get the accent, but you will absolutely understand what people are saying to you. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it is over time has become very English based. And you will discover that Jamaicans still use a lot of words that have sort of passed into absolutions for the rest of us. Like we still talk about being vexed. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a specific. <laughs> <laughs> we're never mad or angry. We're vexed. <laughs> that's good. There's a kind of righteousness. Yes. yes. <laughs> I'm vexed and I have every reason to be. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. So your mother's, um, 
her catering business, what kind of food did she prepare? Oh, standard Jamaican food, chicken, rice, um, rice with red beans, which we call rice and peas. And you, you know, you cook the rice with um, scallions and thyme and garlic, maybe a little bit of ginger, coconut milk. And then you put the um, red beans in. So it gives it this nice sort of pinkish color. It's really delicious. So you have chicken, rice and peas, or plain rice, or goat meat, lots of fish, um, beef, pork. Will you eat goat now? Yes. Yes. I, I, I don't eat a lot of red meat these days, but I do still eat goat. Did your mother ever write down a recipe? Not that I recall, no. She learned from her mother and her aunts and most Jamaican things that I cook, I learned from watching her. Um, I think for baking cakes, she had one book that had various cake recipes in and that's what she used. I am not a baker myself, so... um, but I have a lot. I have a lot of cooker books because I like to read them. I read them the way people read novels, and I sort of imagine what all these flavors would taste like if I were to cook it. And I, I think you know, if if I don't have this specific ingredient, is there something else that I can substitute? Is the rice white or uh, is it? Yeah, the rice is white. You can use brown rice, but typically the the rice is white. Um. I will go to, there is a, a grocery store um, just up the road from me in, in Silver Spring, which is in Maryland. It's maybe about a couple miles away. And because that part of Maryland has such a huge immigrant population from all over the world, that grocery store has everything, everything that you could imagine. I've seen... I've seen Asians um, shopping in there. I have seen Chinese people shopping there. I have seen other Caribbean people shopping there. Um, and it's pretty good. I like their fish because their 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 fish is very reminiscent to the fish that we get at home. Sometimes it's snapper. Sometimes it's um, kingfish, which is huge fish steaks. Um, they do um, mackerel, salt mm-hmm. mackerel, which is which is good. Something that we cook with onions and and um, coconut milk and tomatoes. It's good. So when you would go, would you go to the market, the farmers market or the fresh market with your mother? Would you go? Yes. Yes. Oh yes. I mean, at one point we used to go on a Friday night because that's when. Um, the women would come with their produce and it was mostly women who would come from the countryside with, with the produce. And then she started going on a Saturday morning because our neighbor, um, Mr. Pengeli, my mom and Mrs. Pengeli became very good friends and, and Mr. Pengeli would take them to the market together and he would drive and he would take them to the market on a Saturday morning. He was, and he was very stern. He had to leave at seven o'clock on a Saturday morning. And if they weren't ready, he would, he would basically sit in the car and blow the whole <laughs> And wake up the whole neighborhood. <laughs> well, time's money. And also, if you get there early, you get the best. You get to, yeah, well, you, you get the best, but also, you know, over time, you build up relationships with the different um, people who are selling. So, you know that this lady, for example, has really good peppers. And this guy over here, his garlic is fantastic. And, you know, this other guy from here, when you buy his yam and you cook it, it's so sweet and soft and tender. So you 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 kind of build up a relationship with, with different vendors and they know to expect you and you look out for them. It's, it's very community-based. 
Did you ever have vendors that would set something aside? Like, I know you like this. I knew, I knew you'd be coming. So yes, uh, very often there, um, fruit like papaya. I remember there was, um, one woman who very often she would give, give my mom a papaya and she'd say, this is for you and the children. Mr. Brown used to bring eggs Mm -hmm. on a Friday and um, Mr. Harvey was the butcher so we'd get all our meat from him and there was also somebody who brought fresh milk which we would have to um, it was unpasteurized and so we would have to heat it and then let it cool and then put it in bottles in the fridge would it separate Yes, and I have never liked milk. You didn't I, even like it then? The I nice creamy? Not, no, I did not like it then, and I do not like it now, so I don't do milk. Was there any uh, haggling at the market? Oh, always, always. People are always haggling. And so sometimes, you know, they'd come down maybe by a dollar, some cents, not a whole lot. <laughs> But it was never like personal. No, it's not personal. It's not personal. So what would be the reasons like, come on, you know, I can't. I I shop here every week. I I shop here every week. You know me. You know me. I can't believe you're trying to tell me. I don't pay retail. That that last week, last week, the, the eggs last week, the eggs were $5 a dozen. And now this week you're telling me that they're $6.50? Really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, they, and they'll, they'll tell you, but you know, the chicken feed went up. and But you'd usually come to a happy. I just consider that exhausting. It's just like, tell me what it costs. Here's one thing that folks will do, which always makes me smile. You're buying limes. Mm-hmm. And you say, how much are the limes? And they say, um, five for a dollar. And you go, huh. And you start to walk away. And they'll go, okay, 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 okay. I'll give you six for a dollar. <laughs> um, and you're like, but it was, it was five just, uh, and you're like, they're like, it's, it's, it's okay, mommy. It's okay. I will give you six limes for a dollar. And then you say, okay, you know, I'm not going to give this guy a hard time. I'll just take the six lambs for a dollar. So that's what they'll say, mommy. They mm-hmm. don't say. Or nice lady. Ah. <laughs> oh. Yeah. yeah. Wow. How did your um, mother keep from being robbed? Did anyone ever try to steal from her because in her bar and yeah. also in the catering, this is a cash-based business, it right? Is a, it is very much a cash-based business. So all the time that I was growing up, you know, Montego Bay was a small town. Um, and even when it, they made it a city, it was still a small city. And everyone knew everyone else, especially in the business community. But back then, not a whole lot of crime, not the way it is now. And my mom was only ever held up once. How did she respond? Oh, she talked back. (laughs) And she was like, you're going to have to kill me first. She was in the process of locking the door where this young man forced his way in. And he apparently had his hand inside a paper bag. My mom said, you know what? I have no idea if there was a gun in that bag or if it's just his hand that was in the bag. But, you know, he sort of demanded the money. (laughs) And my mom was like, "Um, you have to kill me first. Now, what my mom didn't know was that there was one customer who had gone to the bathroom and he was on his way back because she would have had to reopen the door to let him out. He was on his way back. When he heard this altercation between my mom and the thief, he ran back 
and ran upstairs into our living quarters. And my sister, who was, you know, minding her own business, suddenly sees this stranger in our living room. She's about to start yelling and screaming. And he's like, shh, don't make any noise. There's a man downstairs trying to rob your mother. And my sister is like, then what the hell are you doing up here? <laughs> You're running away. <laughs> anyway, I think the, the, the guy apparently was so startled that my mother actually talked back to him. He ran away. Hmm. You know, and then the guy who was upstairs came down and I was like, where did you come from? <laughs> but she didn't carry a gun. No, nope. She did a lot not of bartenders. She did not carry a gun. Were there just not as many guns? In no, people, people own guns, but I think she just couldn't see the need for one. <laughs> and also, um, I think... Back then, it wasn't that easy for you to get a gun legally. Um, but you could always buy a machete. <laughs> Everybody had a machete. <laughs> she, she did not live in fear. My mother, no. Right. My mother did not live in fear. My mother's faith was very strong. Um, Where did that come from? Our culture, I mean, you know, Jamaicans are very, very religious, very faith-based, um, mostly Protestant. My level of ignorance is off the charts because I think of Rastafarians. And Which is totally separate from other organized religion. And back in the, in the 60s, the Rastafarians were not accepted at all. When I was growing up, um, they really were treated like pariahs. Coming out of colonialism and independence in the 1960s, early 1970s, Rastafarians were not accepted. When you hear people say, oh, I've been to Jamaica, I went on a cruise, or I went to a resort, um, What's your reaction inside? You may not say it, but is are you kind of like, you haven't really seen Jamaica. You have seen this sort of artifice. Often, that is my reaction. Um, because, for example, when I visit Jamaica, the cruise ships mostly come on a Wednesday or a Thursday. Those are the days that I do not go to the beach because suddenly the beach is full of, well, my God, where did all these people come from? And somebody says, ah, cruise ship is here today. So what happens is the cruise ship comes, they all get on these buses, they go to the crafts market, they drop them off at the beach, they have lunch, and by about three o'clock, they're heading back to the cruise ship. So they haven't really seen Jamaica, and they have interacted with a very small section of Jamaican society. And that is very transactional because it's people trying to sell them things and they're wanting to buy things. I feel the same way about all-inclusive resorts mm -hmm. because I think... It's like a compound. Yeah, you arrive, you're deposited there, and... Um, Everything is highly organized, highly prescripted, but you're not really getting the essence of Jamaica. Yeah. Well, now, so how do you get the essence of Jamaica without putting yourself in danger? Well, I was, I, was going to, I was about to say, <laughs> now, now things are very different. Crime is extremely high. Mm-hmm. The way in which a lot of people um, get to experience the island is they'll talk to Jamaicans, you know, like if it's their, their taxi driver, they will say, well, if you were going to eat lunch, where would you go? 
and they'll tell you about some hole in the wall somewhere that, you know, you show up there and you'll be like, oh my God, I'm sure I'm going to die. <laughs> and the food is the best you've ever eaten. <laughs> That's what you want to find. And that is exactly what you want to find. Jamaicans are very friendly people and they love to chat and, you know, tell you, you know, and they have very strong opinions about everything. <laughs> 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 Whether they know about it or not. <laughs> Whether they know about it or not. have very strong opinions about everything. How about if you just want to buy weed? <laughs> there's there's plenty of weed that you can find if you want it. And there are plenty of people who will be happy to sell you weed. Um, you just, you, you need to be careful. You know, not... <laughs> Not being a weed smoker myself, because I've always grown up with my mother's voice in my head. If I catch you smoking ganja, I will kill you. <laughs> so this <laughs> has so never been a part of didn't my life. Didn't seem to be worth it. Didn't seem to be worth it. And also, I don't like the smell. I think the and and you know now, especially here in the states, because it's legal for personal use in so many places. That really pungent smell just permeates everything. And I hate the way it smells. What's the biggest misconception about Jamaica in the States? I think the biggest misconception is that everybody smokes weed and we're all happy and listening to reggae. And that's about it. We're all happy and listening to reggae. Music is everywhere. I mean, you, 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 it, it's everywhere. We are not all smoking weed. <laughs> <laughs> well, what um, music did you listen to growing up? Um, Stuart, I listened to everything. Um, what we, we didn't have television when I was growing up. I think Jamaica got television shortly after it became independent in 1962. And of course, back then, TV was a very expensive accessory. Um, it was also like a piece of furniture <laughs> because it was a console. Exactly. It was a console <laughs> yeah. made out of wood. Yes, absolutely. We did not have television growing up, but we did have a rec. First of all, we had a record player and then we had a stereogram, mm. which was also like a bit of furniture because it had a, a record player on one side, um, a radio on the other side, and then sort of like a pocket door that if you slid it back, there was another compartment where you could keep the records. Uh -huh. um, we had everything. My mom, she had a lot of jazz. She had a lot of Nat King Cole. Um, I seem to recall... So seeing some 78s mm. <laughs> and of course 45s but we listened to a lot of country music and then um a lot of american r&b and um funk and soul and of course all the iterations of jamaican music and calypso from the other islands so we listened to everything in the bar, what would your mother play? We had a jukebox, so you could, you know, play whatever you wanted to play. Um, and what was on the jukebox? Um, lots of country music, <laughs> lots of reggae. Like and, who? Um, like Jim Reeves mm -hmm. and um, George Jones. So Nashville. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Nashville. Uh, Loretta Lynn. Hmm. Lo lots of, you know, traditional Nashville Wow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know what? Last Sunday, there is a program that comes on the public radio station in D.C. called The Big Broadcast. And last Sunday evening, as I was finishing my packing, getting ready to, to come um, to Boston, the, they were about to end the program. And the announcer said, and we're going to close out tonight's program with Jim Reeves. Um, I think it's time to go. And he put the song on and I found myself <laughs> singing along. And I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, that is such a memory. Because I remember people 
you know, putting their quarter in the jukebox. I don't know and, this song. Can you sing it? <laughs> My singing voice is not as good as it used to be, but I will give you that first. It's like, put your sweet lips a little closer to the phone. Let's pretend that we're together all alone. I'll tell the man to turn the jukebox way down low. And you can tell your friend there with you, he's got to go. And I just... That's sweet. Yeah, it really took me back. Yeah. Walter Ray will love hearing that. <laughs> that will be his favorite part. Walter Ray's always saying to me, you know this song? And I'm like, Walter, when I was in high school, I had a small transistor radio that I would put under my pillow so that nobody could hear it and I would listen to it at night. Did you have an earpiece or did you? I turned it down low and listened did, through. Did you ever get caught? No, no. Yeah. So going to grad school in Columbia, you could work at a newspaper, you could work in magazines, you could work as a TV <laughs> producer. Why radio? Because I grew up with radio. Radio is a huge part of my life growing up. The radio was always on in our house. That is how the world came to me, Stuart, through the radio. Uh, we had the BBC, we had Radio Jamaica, we had the Jamaica Broadcasting Corporation, and um, we would toggle back and forth between those three. And we tended to listen to Radio Jamaica it would be the equivalent of your daytime soaps, but it was on the radio. And I used to listen to it with my mom. And then in the middle of the day, after the 12 o'clock news, there was another story, um, Dr. Paul, which would be like Marcus Welby, MD, but it was on the radio. <laughs> we used to follow that. <laughs> and then... Um, Many years later, they started, um, we had two homegrown serials that would come in the evening. One was Life in Hopeful Village, which was about people living in this village called Hopeful and all the trials and tribulations that, you know, would beset um, a farming community. And then there was another one, Dulcimina and Her Life in Town. And this was a, a serial about a young woman who left the country and went to Kingston to try and make her way in Kingston and all the things that, that happened to her. Storytelling. I have always loved storytelling on the radio. So that's, that's, I think that is why I chose radio. It's very intimate. I am, I am listening and that person is talking to me. I am sitting there with my little radio listening and, um, yeah, this is, this is my story. I'm hearing this. What's the difference between this new medium of podcasting and the old line, uh, radio storytelling? Well, it's far more accessible. I mean, you know, if you have an idea, you the outlay is not that great. Low barrier to entry, as they absolutely, say. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, whether it's a, a one-off or a limited series. I love the idea of podcasting. I do think that there are an awful lot of podcasts out there, and some of them are very bad. <laughs> <laughs> But the very bad ones kind of collapse from their own way. <laughs> and, and, and there's some that I think you really could have told this story in 30, 40 minutes. It really didn't go. I was, go I was thinking three. <laughs> <laughs> I, re I like serialized podcasts that are short. One other thing I like about <clears throat> podcasting as well is that you can, you can really go deep. It's really just another form of, of storytelling on a, just on a different platform. Yeah. Yeah. The technical quality, I'm sure, would Sometimes drive your husband really insane. Sometimes it can be really bad. But the storytelling can permeate that. Yeah. Many of the podcasts that 
NPR produces are often repurposed and put in the news magazine shows. Um, you know, they'll provide a shorter version. Right. Yeah. It's like um, DVR for audio. Yeah. What makes you hopeful? Oh, whenever I meet young people today who tell me that they want to do journalism, that makes me so hopeful because our industry has been so beleaguered for the last 20 years. Um, people leaving, um, the sort of um, fragmentation of the news where you can... <laughs> You can find yourself in your own little echo chamber. I think all of those have had a huge impact on on journalism. But the fact that there are young people who say, oh, yeah, no, I really want to be a journalist, that, that makes me very hopeful. Me too. Was there ever a time living in D.C. where you're like, Pack your bags. We're going to England. We're going to Jamaica. <laughs> We're going to go live on the beach. <laughs> 2020, 2021. Those were rough years. Had the coronavirus pandemic and sort of the strain of being under lockdown sort of affected everybody, affected everybody in different ways. I think that I am fortunate in that I was still working. I never lost my job and I had Walter um, and I was able to work from home. But not being able to see friends and family, that was very hard. Um, and then there was the murder of George Floyd um, and the massive protests across the country, which sort of made me realize that people were hurt and angry. Um, and it was just the culmination in several little incidents where black people had died at the hands of police. And all of that made me think, oh my God, do I want to be here? Um, but that really, it's a fleeting thought because you realize unless you completely remove yourself from society, everywhere you go, there, there's going to be challenges of one kind or another. Um, I think more than anything, what I find really troubling today is the level of misinformation and disinformation that exists. And because we're so polarized, how quick we are to believe the lie and we each retreat to our corners and just yell at each other across the divide. Hmm. There's no there's no compromise. No one's talking to to anyone. No one is, well, I can agree with this, but I'm sorry, that is too much for me. It's like, no, this is my position. I'm not budging. That's it. Things that we used to do sort of privately. It is now all over Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and, and TikTok. Um, and things that used to be communal, like we would all, you'd go to the mall, you'd go to the department store, you'd, you know, go to the supermarket. No, now you stay at home and you open an app and you pick what you want and you put it in the cart and somebody drives it to your house. So you're, you're not having, um, that interaction that you would normally have with, the man at the grocery store who you would see every week when you went to do your weekly shop. And, you know, he knew that you're Mr. Watson and, you know, you like Cheerios, you know. And that the thing is, the way I grew up, 
there was this vast homogeneous black population. And so if someone were black, I assumed they like fried chicken and they like watermelon and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, just they're going, they're going to like Nat King Cole, but they're not going to like Jim Reeves. And I mm -hmm. made all these assumptions because I never really bothered to talk to anybody and say, it's a big world. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. there are a lot of people who identify as black, um, but black is not a nationality. Right. And black is also, it's, uh, it's not even a race. It's, I believe, what do they call it? Phenotype. You know, it's a, it's a means of presenting. It's not, there's, there's not like a cohesiveness. It's not and that's what we learned. That's what I learned from Charles Ogletree. God bless his mm -hmm. soul. Rest in peace. At yeah. Harvard Law. Yeah. When we were in that class. Class, yeah. Yeah. Is that. It was a time where they were saying, uh, is Obama an African-American? Well, yes, he is. You know, his father came from Africa, so he's one generation. Mm -hmm. um, is he black enough <laughs> for, you know, because he he was not a descendant of slaves. Slaves, right. I, do, do you remember? Gosh, that really takes us back. Just this week I was listening to something a woman who wrote a book, and one of the things that she was saying, I I think she's Korean American, and she was saying that one of the things that was really difficult for her was that in in Korea she was not Korean enough, <laughs> and in America she wasn't American enough, um, and and so she's she's constantly straddling these two worlds, you know. And W.E.B. Du Bois talked about that in relationship to black people and the double consciousness where you're living in the black world, but you're also living in the white world and you're crossing from one to the other regularly. You know? And now it's even more complex, mm -hmm. I believe. A lot more complex, yeah. Yeah. And uh, my kids know these nuances instinctively much better than I do. Yes, no, the, that, that, that generation, it, it's a lot more fluid for them. If we got struck by lightning today and the only thing that survived is this little piece of digital audio, uh, what, is, what is your legacy? I want to be remembered as someone who didn't shut the door after me. You know, that I left the door open for other people to pass through. I have been a lot of firsts as a, a black woman. Um, and so I really want to make sure that I preserve and create the opportunities, not just for other black women, but for other women to succeed in this business. What were some of the firsts? first black woman to be an executive producer of All Things Considered um, at NPR. It was pretty significant. Um, one of the first women in news management of that generation. Um, certainly in my family, the first granddaughter and the first one to sort of um, ac accomplish a lot of the things that, that I have in terms of leaving Jamaica, going back to England, having the opportunity to live in different countries, um, having two degrees. It's been a good life. It's been a good life. And... Um, I, I want to make sure that other people are able to have those opportunities. I don't want people to limit themselves. Um, if you think you can do it, you probably can. My life is so much richer, as are my kids and my wife's, having met you and Walter Ray. Well... Met Walter Ray first. <laughs> yes. My cousin and uh, a Watson. 
I do remember when you met each other at um at at Harvard, and I, and I can't remember which one of us it was, and and we said, well, he's our cousin. <laughs> well, the, the other thing is, Walter Ray and I, we both never stopped talking, <laughs> frequently at the same time. <laughs> well, we've had such wonderful um, times with you and Lorraine, and yes. We've you know, eaten well. Yes, and um, Jack, who I can't believe that Jack is now He's a young a man. man you know? yeah. And Colleen yeah. and Aaron and Glennis. No, it's, yeah. it's you been, know you've seen the whole catastrophe. You've it's seen just the whole been circus. Wonderful. <laughs> but I, I love Lorraine. Yeah. I, I just love Lorraine. I really wish I could see her more often. We should come to Charlotte. That's what we should do. Exactly. We yeah. should come to we'll Charlotte. Come up. Yeah. Well, God bless you. I Thank love you. you. I admire you. And I know you didn't want to do this. <laughs> You've got to get a church and I have crew call. I have work. So thank you, ma'am. Thank you, sir. It's been an honor and a pleasure. I appreciate it. When I talk with Carlene, it's hard if you consider her achievements not to be a little bit intimidated, but she is so lovely and so open. And We've spent some time, and I hope we spend some more time. She divides her time between her, uh, their home in D.C. And, and now Boston, where she works with WBUR. So much fun. Thank you, Carlene. In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Katherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com. Look for man listening. One word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who has supported me and manlistening.com and In Her Words, the podcast. And now Voice Lock It. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much.